0: afternoon or good evening listeners and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office and I'm joined as always by my colleague Caroline Urban. Hi Caroline.
1: Hi Brian, hi everyone.
0: Just as a uh, a reminder for either long-time listeners or first-time listeners uh, what to expect on these podcasts. So on each and every episode we catch up with former clients whom we've helped sell and buy businesses and other specialists in the M&A field who can share their insights and provide our listeners with hints and tips on the M&A process. It's a short 15-20 minute podcast that's fun and informative that you can listen to on the go or while you're sipping your morning tea or munching on your afternoon snack. Speaking of which, Caroline, what is your snack of the day?
1: I'm really indulging today and I'm eating a traditional Austrian cake called Zachertorte. Ooh, what
0: about you, Brian? What's a Zachertorte? No, 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 no. Don't get away that easily. What is a Zachertorte?
1: Well, it's named after the famous hotel in Vienna called the Zacha Hotel. And it's a, a very rich chocolate cake with an apricot marmalade in the middle.
0: Mm, good for winter. Very nice. Yes. <laughs> what about <laughs> well, you? Well, I wish I could uh, match that, but um, I'm afraid uh, I think I overindulged over the festive period. So I'm, I'm, I'm snacking on some some little raisins just to keep me, keep me going, getting the sugar levels, blood sugar levels up.
1: Enough about the snack, so let's get on with the show. We are joined today by Alex Hawes, Associate Director at Risk Capital Advisors. Risk Capital Advisors are specialist advisors on all aspects of MA insurance solutions. Alex started his career as a solicitor working for international law firms in the city, where he sat about five doors down from me, and in Jersey before becoming a broker in the MA insurance market. Alex was first at JLT specialty specialising in warranty and indemnity insurance and in January this year he moved to Risk Capital Advisors where he covers all aspects of insurance capital to mitigate or eliminate risks associated with m and transactions. Alex, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Alex, before we begin, you don't get away that easy. What are you snacking on today?
2: So I've just come back from Gothenburg and so uh, I've actually opted for a rather large cinnamon bun. And as it's after midday, I'm going to wash that down with a small glass of Swedish grappa.
1: Goodness me. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is going to be the best podcast yet. I can see it. Um, I, said, <laughs> so, I, said small,
2: I said small glass. Well, there might be several well, small glasses. <laughs> good point.
1: So let's kick off with a bit of context and background for our listeners. Alex, can you briefly tell us what I Insurance is and what drew you to the industry as a career?
2: At its simplest, um, warranty and indemnity insurance, or WI insurance, uh, helps to reallocate risk on M and A transactions. So it provides protection against breaches of the warranties and indemnities given in sale and purchase agreements. Whilst it can be for benefit and protection of either a buyer or a seller, um, the vast majority of policies in this day and age are buy side policies. That the insurer effectively steps into the shoes of the seller and if there's a breach of a covered warranty or indemnity the buyer can claim directly against the insurer under the policy instead of going after the seller. As you kind of alluded to um, in my introduction you know I've, I've been in the market for about two and a half years now and, and before that I was obviously uh, a lawyer. To be honest I kind of knew pretty early on uh, that I think law wasn't really going to be for me long term. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a great profession to get under the belt and you know I kind of keep my practicing certificate up, uh, you know, if nothing else but to kind of bulk out this signature block. But, you know, I basically began looking for, for kind of opportunities outside of the law that I could kind of turn my hand to, um, you know, using some of the skills that I kind of, you know, developed along the way, you know, the, the kind of five and a half years I was, I, I was um, practicing law. And in truth, you know, I hadn't actually had much exposure to, to w and insurance during my legal years. That's a good friend of mine. Um, she had made the move across from law into, into w insurance. Uh, a few years before me and you know I don't know about you guys but I don't really talk shop all that much with my mates so I, I knew this friend of mine had made the move but you know never really delved any further and you know, it's not something you really want to be talking about when you're away on holiday or or you know on a night out No, never mind being no, never mind on the podcast but what I did know is you know she really you know she really enjoyed it so once we got to kind of talking properly I kind of discovered that there was this thriving subsection of the insurance industry that was that was full of ex lawyers you know it kind of seemed like a relatively young uh, fast-moving market you know, where there was kind of real opportunity to to kind of build a career so you know as you as you mentioned I'm, I'm now working for risk capital advisors or or rca we are a specialist m&a insurance broker based here in london uh with a, with a bank in the office in amsterdam that we opened a couple of months ago and i suppose what i kind of really enjoy about being on the broking side is kind of sitting between yourselves the lawyers your clients um and the and the insurance facing in, in kind of two different directions you know, you're trying to win business and, and develop relationships with, with, with lawyers and clients, but you know, you're also doing the same and building relationships with, with the underwriters you're working with uh, on a daily basis because you know, insurance, it's, it's very sociable and you end up working with a, a lot of good people.
0: I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than the both of you. And I remember the days when you know, W&I insurance wasn't very popular. In fact, it wasn't really a dumb thing on M&A deals. And um, it seems to be kind of the last five, 10 years that it's maybe even just the last five years that it's kind of started to take off. Why do you think it's now, You know, why do you think it took the market so long to develop and, and why do you think it's popular
2: recently? Harking back to a simpler time there, Brian. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure kind of, you know, especially for the, for the purists, uh, of which I'm sure there's still plenty out there in the legal world. You know, I think WNI insurance has come a long way in the last five, certainly 10 years. You know, this is somewhat kind of before my time, but you know, I've been reliably told by the elders in the, the WNI insurance market, you know, it's gone from being this clunky and kind of expensive product that i think no one truly understood and this probably kind of goes to the the brokers and under ice at the time although you know i'll I'll probably get in trouble for kind of saying that but you know it's now a product that you know it's it's sophisticated it's robust it's um it's relatively cheap and you know it can really you know it can now really help in in in, you know greasing the wheels on transactions as you guys know, know all too well the interests of buyers and sellers are you know never particularly aligned entering into negotiations and you know, all too often there's this disparity between, you know, the level of recourse that the seller is prepared to offer and, and what a buyer is willing to accept. Then you kind of get parties at loggerheads, the deal can then kind of runs the risk of falling over. But mm-hmm. at least with W&I Insurance now, you know, it's evolved to kind of bridge this gap. that has been thanks to the considerable help of ex-M&A of and corporate lawyers, you know, who turned their hands to underwriting, kind of backing the name. And they really kind of kick the product into, into shape, I think. And yeah, you know, now... It can be used in a number of different ways and, you know, for a lot of different different reasons, really. You know, the main users are the, the private equity firms who use it to secure clean exits and, and avoid proceeds, you know, either being deferred or held up in escrow. Mm-hmm. And now it's not all that uncommon for, for sellers to obtain no recourse positions with insurers taking on, on a lot of the liabilities. You know, so it's highly you know, popular with, with, the, with the PE firms. On the buy side, for example, it can help to protect uh, a buyer entering into a new industry sector. I guess it kind of also provides evidence of of kind of risk management from from a funding perspective. You know, also where you've got management who are kind of giving warranties and and staying on in a business provides a buyer with an alternative recourse rather than falling into this awkward situation of having to go after their own management team Mm -hmm. if there are any any problems further down the line.
1: Interesting. I suppose this becomes more and more popular and applicable where perhaps for strategic buyers where they're buying a business where they are keeping on management and a lot of the employees and as you say you really don't want to end up suing the guy who's now working for you so being able to sort of claim against a third-party insurance policy seems like a nice little buffer
2: exactly yeah that's kind of where it really kind of comes into its into its own when you have kind of situations like that I think
1: and what proportion would you say of your instructions come from, from the seller versus the buyer and what's the big difference between what either of them are looking for?
2: So I'd say, you know, at RCA, we kind of get a real mix and there's no hard and fast rule as to where you know our instructions are likely to come from. Generally speaking, kind of sell-side instructions tend to come from lawyers who are about to kick off auction processes for the sale of their clients' businesses. We've actually got mm-hmm. quite a few of these in in, in the pipeline at the moment. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the preserve of, of private equity firms. You know, founder, sellers, or, you know, like, like we've been talking about, rollover management teams, you know, could equally want to include W9 in, the, in this process. And, yeah, like, as I mentioned, you know, for, for sellers in this instance, it's, it's about as clean an exit as possible, you know, and they should be looking at trying to control the, the W9 narrative by, by taking the initiative and, and, and arranging, it, arranging it themselves, think, often on behalf of the eventual buyer. But it's become the kind of common approach, I'd say, in a lot of, a lot of uh, sale processes especially where
0: PE guys are involved. No, I was just going to say, I mean, just for our listeners, I suppose the reason why you, you mentioned PE and why it's popular is because PE private equity, they're not they're not going to give warranties. Simple as that. They, they do not give warranties on the business. So, so the only way to kind of bridge that gap is insurance. If, if you're buying the business and you want some warranty protection, you're going to need insurance because the PE firm just won't give it. And management, and it wouldn't be fair for management to give it because their equity stake is obviously a lot less than... The private equity, you know, usually the majority shareholder. so the the coverage wouldn't be there. Is it would that be fair to say? And that's why it's popular in the pre market.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and especially yeah, where you might have kind of secondary buyout, you know, where you've got kind of PE sellers, PE buyers, you know, the guys just want to kind get, get out, get out, of there. They you know, they want to distribute their their kind of funds, to their investors, and you know they don't want any of that kind of held up in in escrow.
0: Yeah, agree. So, what sort of deal sizes do you normally get involved in? Is there a range? And then uh, what are the typical premiums in those deals?
2: We see absolutely everything. and I think that's probably part and parcel of being a bit of a boutique firm. You know, we're, we're kind of capable and uh, more than happy really, to look at deals of all shapes and sizes, really. You know, from a, from a few million to, to, to hundreds of million. When I joined the market, you know, not even three years ago, there weren't really that many willing homes for the for smaller deals. You know, most insurers wouldn't really get out of bed for less than 100 grand premium and from a commercial perspective that kind of really ruled out many of the smaller inquiries that we kind of used to get but you know now you know there are insurers who specialize in these smaller transactions and the size of the deal doesn't really matter anymore you know premiums have kind of fallen to as low as 30 grand 40 grand plus additional costs of underwriting fee and, and tax but you know still that becomes very good value for money and then yeah i mean in terms of kind of premium yeah i mean there is really no Typical premium. It's completely dependent on stuff like, yeah, I guess, the sort of sector, uh, you got, like dynamic in the target company you know, the jurisdictions it operates in, you know, number of employees, that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, if we go to one extreme, you know, if we're talking about a property SPV holding a piece of UK real estate with like no operational business, then yeah, you know, the, the premium is kind of going to be going to be peanuts. You, know, you could be looking at a rate of, of less than 0.5%, and without getting too technical, I mean, that's, that's basically the percentage of the insured limit. So for example, if you've got an insured limit of, of 20 million, let's say, then the, the premium is going to be 100 grand. But you know, like I say, real estate, it's certainly where the cheapest rates lie at the moment. I guess for a UK operational business, you could say that the rule of thumb is a rate of around 1%, although you know, nowadays, it's probably actually less than that.
1: One mm. percent of what is it linked to the to the purchase price? How do you how do you value yes. the risks?
2: yeah, so that's the that's the percentage of, of the insured limit.
1: So one percent of the purchase price.
0: Uh, I'm guessing the insured is normally the purchase price, right? So the, the the limitation of liability is normally the purchase price.
2: Yeah, this is the limit of the policy. So this is the, the insured cover. So you could have a you could have an EV of 100 million, but if you yeah, if you're taking out 20 million of of right. cover. Then, sorry, that rate is, Got uh, it. Is, yeah, it is based on the, on the, uh, on the limit there.
0: No, so, so, if you had a deal where it's a 20 million purchase price, but the parties agree a limitation of 10 million, you, and you take out a policy for 10, the premium is 1% of the 10 million.
2: That's right, yeah. 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 It's referred to as a rate online, and that's just, yeah, that's the kind of percentage used by insurers.
1: So, let's move on to our favorite topic, which is COVID. Mm it's had a real severe impact on m and activity in 2020. But nevertheless, have you noticed any trends? Um, have more people taken out W&I insurance or what's generally been your experience? And can you look into your crystal ball and tell us what's gonna happen in the next 12 to 18 months?
2: The hot topic in our world is, is kind of how W&I insurance can, can play its part in you know, deals involving distressed or insolvent businesses. I think it's been a bit of a white whale so far. Um, You know, there was quite a lot of chatter um, earlier on in lockdown about this kind of wave of distressed deals, you know, that we're bound to to hit the market. But I think that was really before anyone realised the extent to which, you know, the government was going to wade in and and prop up the UK economy. And, you know, the banks also have not really been all that keen to call in uh, their bad debts and, and take responsibility for those. But with this... Coming to an end in theory, uh, come the end of the year, you know, the the, the W I market is gearing up for this influx of distressed to insolvent businesses. As the brokers, and insurers as well, you know, have been trying to figure out just how you know W I insurance can be properly deployed on these types of deals. I think I think the general consensus is that synthetic warranties could be used in the absence of of actual ones, you know, where there's no one on the sell side willing or or able to give them. These synthetic warranties, as they you know as they're known, are kind of effectively negotiated between the buyer and the insurer, and then baked into the the W and I policy itself. The concept of synthetic warranties, it's um, it's been one that's been kicking around for quite a while, but it's often been tricky in reality to to kind of implement it kind of effectively because the problem you, the problem you have is the kind of difference between the kind of the extent of cover that's expected by the lawyers on the deal and then you know what the insurers are actually kind of willing to provide in the absence of of any real DD or meaningful disclosure, or, or any, or, or maybe like a, you know, a, a kind of Q and A process as well. But we're starting to think, you know, in the right circumstances, WI insurance could be a very useful tool in these types of deals, providing that to a certain degree of comfort to buyers and maximizing value for the insolvency practitioners or, you know, even kind of sellers looking for that, that very quick deal. And then dusting off my crystal pool, I mean, to be honest, in terms of MA activity, we have this kind of Feeling that things are picking back up a little bit and have kind of been for the last month or so. I depend. I guess it kind of depends on on when this podcast goes out. But mm. at, at the time, at the time of uh, at the time of recording, the lawyers we're speaking to you know, do seem a little bit busier. Insurers are starting to see you know far more submissions as well, we're almost back to kind of pre-COVID levels. How long this will continue for? I, I don't think anyone in our small corner of the m a world really knows. But you know, I think. We're going to try and make some hay whilst the, whilst the sun shines, mm. so to speak.
0: Mm. In your experience, what are the most heavily negotiated warranties? Appreciate this varies sector to sector, but you know, could you give us a couple of examples there for, for the listeners?
2: I think in terms of negotiating coverage for those warranties with insurers, it does vary quite considerably. Again, you know, it's down to the sector size, type of business, that sort of thing. But also does depend on, on the quality of, of the DD. If this doesn't match up to the warranties for which coverage is being sought, then, you know, it's going to be a tough one for insurance. But I'd say, like, the main battleground tends to be on the kind of general exclusions in the policy. So recently, we've spent plenty of time and energy butting heads with uh, insurers on their cyber exclusions, which tend to include GDPR. Um, mm. And also earlier in lockdown, a couple of insurers round with general COVID exclusions as well.
0: I just wonder what you mean by general COVID exclusions.
2: So yes, it's, it's kind of exclusion that would kind of almost kind of cover, could cut across all the kind of warranties. And so basically, if any kind of uh, breach or kind of claim relates to, to COVID in any way, then it would be kind of excluded from the policy, which is pretty punchy stuff. And I certainly kind of think that it was a bit of a knee jerk reaction. It came from a couple of the bigger company markets. By all accounts it was an exclusion that came from the very top and, and ran across you know a lot of their their lines, not necessarily just W and I. It was interesting, certainly trying to negotiate these because you know, mm. whilst they weren't really, you know, willing to kind of remove them being with the game, but to basically try and to pair them back as much as possible, you know, so trying to get them so, you know, they were kind of time restricted, uh, so that they, you know, they only applied from, oh, I don't know, whatever the official lockdown date was, I think it was the 23rd of March or something, mm. trying to carve out, you know, all of the warranties, which COVID clearly didn't apply to that that was in the first few months of lockdown when COVID was very much an, an unknown and, and I do think that insurers now have a much better grasp of the situation and you know are more willing to consider kind of COVID part of the underwriting process really uh so yeah they're not quite as kind of extreme with those exclusions they they just basically want to know what impact COVID has had on the target business basically if the if the buyer has done the, the necessary diligence ar- around that then they're generally kind of willing to to take a view.
1: I guess this is also Quite an interesting position that you're in, because you get to sort of put in place the policy, but then you also get notified when claims are made. Can you tell us how how often are claims actually made under a W nine insurance policy, and which which warranty is most often pla- claimed against?
2: There has been a steady increase yeah, in the frequency of claims over the last few years. This is pretty unsurprising, given the growing use of the product. I mean, depending on who you speak to last year, apparently one in five MA transactions in Europe included WI. And the kind of general consensus is that between you know, 10% and 20% of deals result in a claim being made. In terms of where these claims come from, I'd say that it's the financial statements and tax warranties that tend to be the biggest drivers of claims notifications. Although warranties relating to compliance and laws, employment, and material contracts also see some action as well. There's a couple of the, the company markets, a couple of the big insurers that, that do. Reduced annual claims studies, which can be found through um, a bit of Googling. AIG's is is the one to go to for for snazzy bar charts.
1: Um, Well, I think we'll leave it off there. So, Alex, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank Um, you
2: for having me.
1: Before we end the podcast, we have just enough time to do our rapid fire round. Okay. Alex, you will have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can in that time. So just say the first thing that comes to mind. So, in one word or phrase only. On your mark. Get set. What was your first job?
2: It was working in a fish and chip shop. Favourite holiday destination? St. Anton in Austria.
1: If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead, or fictional, who would you invite and why?
2: I go for Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, and Carl Pilkington. Sit back and, uh, and take it all in, really. Those guys know how to do a podcast. <laughs> no thanks. No, I was going to say. <laughs> Favorite movie? Probably Goodwill Hunting or The Departing. But anything set in Boston does it for me.
1: What are you currently reading? Uh,
2: a book called uh, Eight Days in Yalta, which is about kind of when Churchill, Stalin, and <laughs> FDR got together after the Second World War.
0: If Richard Branson sat next to you on a flight, what would be your first question other than are you Richard Branson?
2: I will ask him how he keeps his hair looking so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and finally, if you could travel back in time to meet your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give him? It's probably not really advice,
2: but um, i just t- tell him that he's never he'll never enjoy a major football tournament as much as last year's year in 96, at least for... <laughs> At least the next <laughs> at least the next 23
1: years. So, you know. Alex, thank you so much for your time and participating in MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast.
0: So that's it for today, listeners. Thank you for joining us with our chat with Alex Hawes, Associate Director at Risk Capital Advisors, who specialise in M&A insurance solutions. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye, all.
1: Goodbye.